one thing I learned is you can't write a great story without great facts. No matter how good a writer you are, it's not going to happen. Hello, and welcome to The Interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, your host and the editor-in-chief of Mediae. Joining me this week are New York Times reporters James B. Stewart and Rachel Abrams, two incredibly impressive journalists who I have long read and admired. They are out with a new book this week. It's called Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy. It's a riveting account of the final years of Sumner Redstone. Sumner is, of course, the media titan whose vast empire included Paramount, CBS, and Viacom. His overseeing of that vast empire well into his 90s, when his obsession with sex and predilection for throwing millions of dollars at dozens of different women, almost threatened to run that empire into the ground. I spoke with Jim and Rachel about their incredible new book, which chronicles Sumner's wild personal life, the family struggle for his company, and what remains of the Redstone Empire. Thanks to you both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So this is a brilliant book. I genuinely could not put it down, as I I said to you guys before we started recording. So I urge all of our listeners to go out and buy it immediately. It's a fascinating story about the decline of a media empire through the final years of its leader, media titan Sumner Redstone. You've got everything in here. You have deep reporting, great analysis. You have texts and emails and a lot of fresh information. My first question, though, is why did you decide to tackle this subject? Uh, Well, Jim and I had each gotten separate tips um, that had to do with Les Moonves and CBS's investigation into its own culture and and misbehavior of its top executives. And the tip that I got came from a source who turned out to have a treasure trove of material that ended up really helping to inform the book. But an editor at the Times told me that Jim was possibly working on a parallel track, and I should really stop by and talk to him. Now, Jim and I had never once had a conversation before this. We did not know each other. I, of course, knew of Jim. He is one of the preeminent journalists in our industry. And so I was a little bit nervous to just say that I, you know, maybe had something somewhat helpful. Maybe we could team up. But Jim sat on the outside aisle uh, and had the benefit of, of, of seeing all the foot traffic. So if you were leaving the office, you would pass by his desk. And so I passed by, had my coat on, and I just thought, well, I'll just stop. He's right there. And I said, Jim, you know, I, I got this tip and sort of told him what I was working on. And he said what he was working on. And that's how it really started. Um, we we reported on um, Moonves and the the real reasons why he was ousted from CBS for the New York Times. And, and that reporting is what inspired this book because both of us realized early on and separately that um, that there was just so much material here. This was such a rich story. Yeah, we originally thought it was kind of the Me Too movement meets the corporate boardroom and governance. And it's true, it is that, but we soon realized it was much bigger than this. And Ultimately, we, we feel it was a, fa- a family drama and very much a story of a tyrannical father and, and his daughter and the struggle of, on her part to um, restore the family name. As Jim has pointed out before, the father-daughter dynamic is not one that is as frequently explored, perhaps, as father-son or mother, mother-daughter, particularly in nonfiction. So that was also something I think that we were drawn to. I do love how the book sets up this major business story by first chronicling Sumner's pretty wild personal life. And because the two are so intertwined, could you lay out for us how Sumner operated in his personal life and uh, you know, tell us about his relationships and the nature of them? 
Uh, Jim, Jim, which one of us should take? Just fall on the stake. <laughs> where Where should we start? I, I am I am I am so proud to work uh, with uh, to have worked on a book with Jim Stewart that has more sex and depravity than anything else he's ever <laughs> ever written. Um, and in large part, you know, that's Sumner's personal life. As he got older, he uh, his he increasingly has indulged his in, his extracurricular interests. Let's just put it that way, and. Uh, it was becoming a huge distraction, not only in his personal life, but the people around him uh, were starting to worry that it was interfering with his ability to to, to run his companies, and 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 his um, his appetites, let's just say, uh, made him vulnerable. In addition to his old age, um, it made him vulnerable to uh, increasingly to people who wanted to use him for money and and did use him for money and m- managed to siphon off so much from him. Um, at the end of his life, there were two women who moved into his mansion and and walked away at the end of the day with at least 150 million dollars um and one thing that surprised us about the story and anybody with a maybe an aging or, or ailing family member will appreciate this is i just could not believe that somebody with so much power so many resources so much money would not have the guardrails around him to protect him from people who might just be trying to use him um and of course his wealth made him a target but also you, wouldn't you think that, like, it, my God, if that could happen to him, couldn't it happen to anybody? Yeah, I mean, I think we discovered very quickly that there were no boundaries between the personal and the corporate. And the fact that was what forced his daughter, Sherry, who really was a reluctant participant, but she had to get back into this to try to save her father from these impulses of his. And you describe in the book in great detail how those two women that you mentioned basically asserted their power over not only his household, but Sumner himself. How do you think they ended up controlling him and being able to take away so much money from him? And I also wanted to ask about this because one of the most shocking things when I'm reading this book is that it's not only these two women that Sumner paid an extraordinary amount of money to. There were many, many women. Were you guys shocked when you were reporting this out? How many women he had personal relationships and the extent of the the amount of money and stock options that he gave to these women? (laughs) We were totally shocked. Um, I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe that this went on on this scale. I mean, even relatively minor dalliances led to purchases of multi-million dollar mansions in Beverly Hills. And, you know, there's one example where, you know, suddenly, you know, options and stock and, you know, would just show up in some in somebody's account to, to the tune of millions of dollars. And, you know, you wonder why, you know, women didn't want to talk about this. I mean, whatever he did was accompanied by these lavish fortunes on a scale that I've never encountered before. Right. You hear about payments to women all the time, and they're extensively reported, particularly during the Me Too movement. But this kind of voluntary payment to women it, to the tune of millions, I, I have never read about before either. And also it raises some really interesting questions about elder abuse and, you know, aging parents and what happens. And, you know, there's, it's not often a clear line between mentally competent and incompetent. And you see the way people, you know, take advantage of him and the women in particular isolate him. I mean, it's a textbook case. Uh, at least some people consider it a textbook case in elder abuse. And that is a, you know, as the population ages and, you know, people have more wealth, it's a growing problem. How much was known about his personal life and the extravagant spending on women within his companies? 
within his companies, um, there was a joke that the Redstones would give each other subpoenas for Christmas. Uh, the tensions among the Redstones was was well known, and his 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 sexual appetites were making headlines in Page Six. So it's not just people at the company that knew about this stuff. Yeah, and the chief executive of, of uh, Viacom was a, a trustee of his trust, and he was aware of the money that was moving, and he testified. What was it, Rachel? That we have a quote. We quote him in the book that there were, you know, ten, there were scores of. He said there were so many women who got over a million. There were even more who got like ten million, and there were it, it, even beyond that. You know, he had a. He, yes, they knew. They knew, and they did nothing about it. And in this book, though, I think, I, I think one of the things that, that this book does is no one has assembled all of these stories together and really explained. Um, you know, how the drama unfolded. You are a fly on the wall inside of his mansion. And, um, and, and people think about business stories sometimes, like they're separate from people stories, but, but this really goes to show you that at its core, you know, businesses are run by flawed people. They're run by, by human beings who, um, who are subject to loneliness, the vulnerability of age, uh, greed, uh, narcissism, um, the yearning for approval from one's withholding parent. All of these things are, are, are evident in this book and shaped the course of this company. Right. And it's like all those personal details you have about Sumner's life, not only are they thrilling to read, but they also are fundamental to understanding what happened to his companies and to understanding how his life ended. At the same time, you you detail extensively how misogynistic, racist, inappropriate, you know, downright predatorial he was with the women he pursued. Was that something that was widely known within the media empire? And was it something that he had people covering up for him? I think it was pretty widely known. I mean, I had a couple people, uh, people that I used to know when I back when I lived in L.A. who found out we were working on this book and said things to me like, oh, God, I remember being on the red carpet with him and use the N word, you know, things like this. And so so I don't think that I do not think that his bad behavior was a secret to people that might have been in the industry, you know, to the rest of America, maybe maybe not so much. But but he he was not like Weinstein in the sense that he was, um, you know, accused of sexual misconduct by tons of women and everybody knew about it. Uh, but, but, but people were well aware of his reputation for being a bully. And certainly people knew about how his sexual exploits were, you know, getting increasingly, um, uh, we're, in, we're making increasing headlines in page six. Let's just put it that way. Let me give you one anecdote that I just love. It's a small thing, but it tells you all you need to know about that. So this huge Paramount celebration and Sumner shows up with this woman. It was one of the women living in the mansion with him. And she's wearing, you know, an incredibly revealing dress and lucite stiletto heels. And a reporter happened to be there and said to the head of PR for Viacom, who's that? And he said, oh, that's his home health care aid. <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna, with a straight I'm, face. With a straight face. With a straight face. So I rest my case. Did they know? Yes. Oh, yes, they knew. Got it. Got it. <laughs> yeah, that, I think that sums it up perfectly. Now, I, I want you guys to describe, because this is a big part of the book, and it's a huge part of the story. Describe the relationship between Sumner and his daughter, Sherry, which was a particularly fraught one over the years, as you guys describe in the book. He, at times, was supportive of her, thought she was a great executive, other times made it clear he did not want her to run his companies. Um, and again, this is one of those ways in which our book is such a succession-like family drama, although I would argue quite weirder. Um, you know, at its core, this is about a 
father who would withhold his love and his affection and a daughter who really yearned for it and and yearned for it um all all of his life and i think the last scene i shouldn't give too much away but the last scene really shows you that that even after he's dead and he's really been so abusive she still she still wants him to love her and approve of her and um and 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 sought that throughout you know all of this all of this drama and and, and also by the way it was quite painful for her to read about these headlines about her do- her father's sex life, about how he was being taken advantage of, um, so and to have that, I can't imagine how that would feel to have all of that happening and also out in the press. Right, and I think it's a, the, the the fascinating story, at least part of the of business aspect of it here, is that the, the the Redstone family and the fight of individual figures for voting control over what is now known as Paramount Global, and that was the result of the 2019 recombination of CBS and Viacom. How did Sherry get to the point of basically winning this fight for control over the company? Yeah, well, it was it was quite um, a battle. I mean, first of all, the two women who had moved in with her father came very close to seizing control of the trust, which in turn control the voting power over these companies. So first she had to derail that, which she succeeded in doing through a, a story we could never have made up. Um, <laughs> that's a whole chunk of the book. Then, then she had to deal with the extremely hostile chief executive of Viacom, which owned all the cable companies and Paramount, and who was often referred to as, as some surrogate son, which of course drove her crazy when she was his real daughter they had a huge uh, showdown. And again, because by then she had regained some, she regained a closer relationship with her father. They did control the, the voting power and they were able to replace the trustees and then in turn the board and they got rid of him. That was a huge battle. And then just when she thought it was all over and she could breathe easier, Les Moonves at CBS whipped up their board and they declared war on her. And with this lawsuit, and who knows what, where that would have ended up, except for the Me Too movement swept Les Moonves out. And that finally, she redid the board. Ultimately, she merged the companies. Um, she now is is firmly in control. Her victory almost feels like a, a pyrrhic one, given how much of their personal wealth was sapped and how mismanaged the companies were. Where do you guys think the Redstone legacy and wealth stands now? greatly diminished. Uh, and as we look at on this media landscape where all of these, there's so much, there's so much consolidation happening in the media industry right now. There is a lot of speculation that Sherry is going to have to sell or merge. I mean, people are not going to the, the movies anymore. They're not watching television the way they used to. I mean, at, at, at Sumner's peak, in this business, when he really became a full-fledged media mogul, and by the way, in his seventies, I might add, um, the cable business was printing money. You know, Nickelodeon, MTV; these these things were 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 household names and brands that were creating the content that shaped our culture. And now, of course, for reasons that have nothing to do with the Redstone family, um, those 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 revenue streams have dried up, and the fortune, the the, the Redstone fortune, is greatly diminished. And and uh, there's a lot of speculation that the companies will have to merge or sell in order to be viable. Yeah, this succession-like fighting ate up, you know, at least two, maybe three years of incredibly valuable time. Because while that was all going on, 
the whole streaming revolution was taking place, a, a seismic upheaval in the industry, which I'm sure Sumner never really was aware of or was able to understand. So it did set them back. And I think, yes, as Rachel said, the future is probably, they're not big enough even now that they've merged. I was reading a review of this book in which William Cohen suggested that you guys went perhaps a little easy on Shari. What do you make of that objection that the book might be too charitable to her and her role uh, in the saga? Well, I vigorously dispute that. I, I mean, we heard that, I mean, there's so many, you know, people who on the board at CBS, at Vodcom, who were suspicious of Sherry, didn't trust her. There were so many rumors about her. I cannot tell you how many reporting hours we spent tracking down allegations about Sherry that in every case turned out in the end not to be true. And again, I think one of the shocking things about the story is um, the way the directors at CBS would believe anything Les Moonves told them, even though there was credible evidence that the, and even New Yorker stories of women that had, uh, he had assaulted, but they disbelieved everything Sherry told them and readily believed these wild rumors that she was like trying to sabotage this deal or she had planted all the stories. We found that none of that to be the case. We did not go soft on Sherry Rose and we simply told the story, the facts that we were able to confirm. It almost feels like there might be some sexism at play in how Sherry Redstone was treated versus Les Moonves. I, absolutely. I mean, I, I, it would have been a great story if she had pl- somehow secretly planted all this stuff in the New Yorker, and if she had, as Jim said, been behind some of these these other uh, you know developments. But and we saw we spent so much time looking for evidence of that and just couldn't find it. And it made me wonder, actually, I, 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 it made me really wonder, like, why is everybody talking about this as though it's a given that she was behind this? Because when these stories broke, everybody was saying, well, Sherry's behind it. Sherry's right. behind. Well, you know, Sherry, it's like, you know, the, the head of communications for CBS was saying that she must have had something to do with it because he didn't have any, he didn't have any indication. He heard no footsteps about Ronan Farrow at the New Yorker working on this stuff. So therefore it must've been planted, which by the way, does a disservice to the New Yorker and the work that they did. But nevertheless, you know, I'm sorry, why does not hearing any footsteps mean that she planted something? You know, we as reporters do a lot of work uh, before anybody hears about anything. And and that, to me, I, the assumptions that were made, how quickly people were willing to believe based on very little, um, uh, you know, it made me wonder. Also, did I did I too aggressively pursue these rumors because, you know, thinking that there could be a there there. I mean, I really, I think it actually prompted some introspection on my part too. Um, so I think it's a really good question. Was, was sexism at, at, at play at all here? That's one of the really fascinating parts of the book is this chronicle of the downfall of Les Moonves, who was the media titan who ran CBS until he was taken down by, by a pretty grim uh, sexual abuse scandal. And as you note, in the book, you dispel these rumors that Sherry orchestrated the downfall of Moonves by leaking news of his misconduct to Ronan Farrow. What did you find when you looked into that? Were you able to figure out how these allegations came out and spilled out into public view? So uh, we didn't, uh, I, I spoke, to, we, we spoke to a number of women. We list the women we spoke to in the back of the book. The ones, there were 12 women who spoke to uh, the New Yorker. I can't remember how many of those people we talked to on or on the record or on background, but every single person I asked how did you end up speaking to Ronan Farrow? And all of them had 
uh, convincing and compelling stories that made a lot of sense. Just to put this in context, keep in mind that this is happening at the height of Me Too. Weinstein has broken. The floodgates have opened. People are uh, starting to just, the amount of incoming that uh, news organizations like the New York, the New York Times was getting for people who wanted to finally tell their stories. It was like floodgates. You could not keep up with this. So some of these women said, you know, look, I, I, I saw coverage of Weinstein and I thought, you know, I should, I really need to do something about this. Like Phyllis Golden Gottlieb went to, saw something on television that made her think, okay, I have to go to the police precinct. Um, another woman was urged by her friend to come forward. Um, somebody else was introduced to Ronan Farrow by another friend. I mean, everybody had a story like this. And given what was happening in this country at that time, there was no reason to not believe that. I mean, I, you know, so, you know, another, sorry, Rachel, I don't mean to interrupt you, but a fascinating thing to me was the New Yorker story and all those women in there, that isn't what brought him down. The board, I mean, honestly, they didn't even seem to care about that. The one of the directors wrote an email that we saw that said, we don't care if a hundred more women come forward, less is our leader, we're going to stand behind him. What did him in were stories that were not in The New Yorker, a, a, an actress and his attempt to cover that up, um, a, his diabetes doctor, and Sherry had nothing to do with those things. Hmm. Reading through all this made clear that there was a particularly bad culture at CBS or Sumner's Empire more broadly. Everyone from Redstone himself down to Jeff Fager, who was the longtime EP of 60 Minutes, had their own either Me Too controversies or scandals. And it seems like that kind of behavior was pervasive. You both report on, on business and media. Did you find that it was worse within the Redstone media empire than it was at other networks? Well, we only looked at this one media empire, of course, but you raise a really good point, which is, you know, is this happening everywhere? Um, I would say that this is an incredible window into what was happening at this company. And the takeaway here should be, if it was happening here, why don't you think it was happening at other places? Yeah, it's right to say we don't know for sure, but obviously other media companies had their own problems like, you know, NBC. But, you know, recently, the, these kinds of scandals have surfaced at places like McDonald's. And that's that's about as heartland a company as you're going to run into. So I have to assume that this was a pretty widespread. You know, with the power and the money came hubris and hubris enabled many and mostly men, you know, all men, really, to feel that they could do whatever they wanted. Do you think that there's a new era now at Paramount Global that is free of not just the sexual harassment scandals that we saw before, but also the infighting that hobbled the previous iterations of the company? Free of? I mean, I can't imagine any company is ever going to say be able to say that it's free of sexual right. harassment and other problems caused by human nature, greed, power, money. I think that companies now are under so much pressure to respond to consumer complaints. Um, they know that their executives cannot get away with the same behavior that they once did. And um, and to be a little bit cynical, uh, companies have gotten really good at cleaning up their PR crises and um, and good at trying to um, and more mindful of not causing them. So uh, you know, I think people will always be behaving badly, but hopefully. Uh, uh, the things that were once tolerated will not be once they come to light. And and that is actually a good reason to point to the fact that, um, you know, these stories, nothing changes unless people tell their stories and tell them publicly often. Um, and I think that, you know, that's one of the things that 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 is evident, at least with this story and this window into this company. 
You know, I give Sherry Redstone credit. She really has brought more diversity onto the board level. There are more women, women on the board. The companies have named high-ranking women executives. But Rachel and I discovered in interviewing people and trying to get people to go on the record and come forward, there's still tremendous fear on the part of women in Hollywood. They are still concerned that if they go on the record with these stories, their careers are going to be damaged, if not ruined. It's shocking to hear, especially after the Me Too era, that 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 you know that that is still the case. But I wanted to ask a little bit about the writing process for this book because I always find it to be a fascinating look behind the curtain, and I'm even more interested in what the process is like for a book with two reporters working on it. What was that process like, Jim? Do you want to answer that? Um, well, I have to say, <laughs> as Rachel said, we didn't really know each other at all, and. I had no idea. I've never had a co-author before, so I never really knew what this was going to be like. But it was it was really fantastic. I think um, we complemented each other in in so many ways, including our kind of areas of specialty and backgrounds, and the fact that we're different ages and levels of experience really really helped a lot in so many ways. So it was great um, working with her. You know, I think we it was during the pandemic, and it was great having a, a co-author because. Who else? I had nobody to talk to, really. So Rachel and I would be on the phone, like, practically every day. Rachel, and we'd be saying, can you believe this? Or Rachel was out in Arizona, you know, interviewing this amazing character, George Pilgrim, and would call me. It was, like, totally fascinating. And then, you know, I think we, the story changed because we thought it was more of a corporate drama. Like we said, corporate meets the Me Too. And then as the family drama became more clear, we kind of threw out a lot of what we originally wrote and, and started all over again. And then I, I will say once that was clear, it, it really did flow. Uh, I won't say easily because writing's never easy, but it did, it kind of un, un, just spiraled out. Did it help that so many of Sumner's relationships ended in lawsuits? Yes. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, yeah, when, when there is a lady. lawsuit, then you, you know, you have a narrative, in some cases you have a narrative spine, you've got documents. And, and, and one of the things we got were previously confidential documents in some of this litigation. So the, the lawsuits definitely helped us fill out the story and in all of its contours and textures. Yeah. One thing I learned is you can't write a great story without great facts, no matter how, no matter how good a writer you are, it's not going to happen. And as we need the confidential source that gave us so much raw material, the lawsuits, the documents that we hadn't seen before. I've never had an opportunity to write something that with this rich a load of underlying facts. Well, it's a brilliant book, Jim and Rachel. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks and thanks for, for reading it. Thanks for the great questions. Yes. Great questions. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Jim and Rachel on MediaIke.com.